is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is Tara Westover, author of the memoir, Educated, which tells the story of her unconventional upbringing in rural Idaho. Westover is the youngest of seven children raised by parents who shunned mainstream society, were opposed to public education and modern medicine, and stockpiled food, weapons, and fuel in case the end of days or a standoff with the government were imminent. Westover grew up Mormon, though her father's extremist views were beyond religion. None of his children went to school, and beyond learning to read, Tara was not given any formal education at home. She worked in her father's junkyard most days. Her mother was an informally trained midwife and herbalist. In Westover's teenage years, in part due to the abuse she endured from one of her brothers and the dangers of the junkyard, she became determined to take the ACTs and go to college. She was 17 the first time she stepped foot into a classroom and now holds a B.A. from Brigham Young, a master's from Trinity College, Cambridge, was a visiting fellow at Harvard University, and earned a Ph.D. in history at Cambridge. We began the interview talking about her parents and how they ended up living on the side of a mountain in rural Idaho with seven kids. I think they both had reasonably mainstream upbringing. My mother was raised in this little town, this little farming town. It had about 5,000 people in it, probably only about 3,000 when she was when she was growing up. And then my father was raised only 13 miles away, but outside of that little town at the, at the base of this really beautiful mountain. And, hey, you know, he went to school. He had a pretty mainstream life. I think he was unconventional. I think he was charismatic. But it wasn't until after they were married and three or four of my brothers had been born that my father decided that he didn't trust what he called the medical establishment, that, that there was something corrupt about doctors and hospitals and that they couldn't be trusted. So from that point on, my parents started having all their children at home and then they stopped registering the, them for birth. And maybe that was just laziness, I'm not really sure. But then also my dad got the same ideas about public school. And so then pulled all of my brothers out of school so that when the when the younger children were born, so I'm the youngest, when the younger three were born, I mean, we were never, actually the younger four, we were never put in any school at all. We never went to the doctor. We were born at home, delivered by a midwife, and we uh, didn't have birth certificates. So really, according to the state of Idaho and the federal government, we just didn't exist. And one of the things you also talked about in the book is that you, you know, not only don't you have a birth certificate, but you don't know your exact birthday. Does that bother you? It never has. I never thought of it as particularly weird, and I mean, I picked my birthday when I was nine. I committed to it, and I think I kind of forgot that I hadn't really ever known what it was, because that just became my birthday, and then I guess when I was trying to get a passport, it became a real issue, because I only had three documents showing when I had a, I had a baby blessing that I had, that had happened when I was born, certificate from the, from the Mormon church, and that had a different birthday than my delayed certificate of birth, which I got when I was nine. And then the only other piece of evidence I had was my, when I was baptized when I was eight years old, because that's the age that you get baptized in Mormonism. And that had a completely different birthday than either of the other two. And then I had an affidavit from my grandmother that had she had 
that she gave when I was nine to get the birth certificate and she had put a completely different birthday. So then I really, you know, I, I didn't really even think about it until I was getting my passport and then it was causing me real trouble because there was no way that the United States government was going to issue a passport to someone who didn't exist until they were nine years old. You know, I mean, they have no idea who I am and couldn't establish their birthday. And it took quite a lot of just hoops. I had to have my aunt go in and swear an affidavit in a, in a court saying that I, uh, yeah, that she had known me all my life and and that I was who I said I was. And yeah, we didn't know my birthday, but it, it was quite an ordeal. But getting my birth certificate when I was nine was also just quite an ordeal because there was there was just no record that I existed as a person. And the few documents that there were contradicted each other. I think we do accept a lot of what society deems normal that and that we accept that is part of a, a governmental system. And I, I, I actually can understand like, I can still be here on the planet without a birth certificate. I can still be here without these school records. I can still exist because you grew up this way and then you went to college and you learned the other way. Is there a part of the way that you were raised that you still really either hold on to or cherish or is in conflict with what you see as the norms in society today? I think the thing that I value the most from my upbringing really is the attitude towards learning that my parents had. I think they probably took it a bit far, but they had this belief that you can teach yourself anything better than someone else can teach it to you, whatever it is. And I mean, again, there wasn't a lot of homeschool when I was growing up. We had books around the house, but we, we were never made to read them. And I never I never wrote an essay for my mother. I never took an exam. There were never any lectures. It was very hands-off, which I think, again, I think it was probably too far. But I am grateful that I was brought up with the idea that I can learn things so that when I was 16 and I decided I'm going to try to educate myself and I had no idea if I would even be able to go to college because I had no formal education. But when I bought this study guide and I opened up the, the math section and I, I couldn't do any of the problems. In fact, I didn't even understand any of them. And I took the book to my mother and I said, I think they made a mistake in printing this book. It's full of letters and math is supposed to have numbers. And she said, no, it's not a mistake. This is called algebra. And I said, oh, can you teach this to me? And she said, no, I, I've forgotten it. But, you know, you can learn it. Go get a book and you can learn it. And it would have been really nice to have a math tutor. I'm not recommending this for anyone. But I do think just that idea, you can learn this. This can be taught is something I really value because I've become convinced of their philosophy, that you can learn things better than you can be taught them. And that the curriculum that you build for yourself is always going to be better than a curriculum that is built for you. And I really think an education needs to have individual buy-in. It needs to have social buy-in as well. I think the social element, the societal aspect needs to be there. But I think we have that in excess possibly at, at the moment. And uh, maybe what is missing is a little bit of that notion that individuals are taking ownership or taking responsibility or even just taking interest in, in their own education and the creation of their own mind. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Tara Westover, author of the memoir, Educated. So you were working in the, your dad's junkyard and scrapping metal and helping your mom make herbs and you went to a birth with her. All this was going on and you weren't going to school and then you were really interested in music and dance. 
And your mom actually supported that. She found you dance lessons. She found you music lessons. She paid for it um, when your parents didn't have a lot of money. Were you the only one of your siblings that sort of reached out like that? And what was it inside of you that made you want to do those things? I think initially it was because my brother had had this really serious injury in the scrapyard. He had spilled some gasoline on his jeans and then lit a cutting torch. And of course, the jeans had caught fire and his leg had been really badly burned. And because my family didn't believe in doctors or hospitals, we treated that at home without morphine. And I think at that point I wanted I wanted to get kind of away from my father's junkyard. And I started doing that in, in various ways. I started doing little jobs for people who lived in our community. I packed macadamias and cashew nuts for someone who ran a gourmet nut business out of his house, or I babysat a lot. And just that put me in contact with people in the town. And then one of them in particular kind of reached out to me and said, I, I think she just noticed she'd never really seen me with any of the other kids in the town. Because I, I mean, I'd never been invited I was never invited over by the other kids. You know, they went to the public school and we didn't. We were seen as a bit different. So I didn't really have any friends in that town and or anywhere else. And so she, I think, said, oh, well, why don't you take this dance class? And then my father objected to that because you, we had to wear clothes that he considered to be immodest. So I wasn't allowed to keep doing it. And I think my mother just saw how much I seemed to be looking for something, for for friends, for some kind of connection with other people in our town and so she was the one who really brainstorming for something that I could do that wouldn't be involved with the school because my father would never have allowed me to do anything that was involved with the public school Um, and what she settled on was voice lessons and my father became obsessed with that really he just really loved hearing me sing and so in a way I I think he would have especially as I became a teenager I think he would have hated to see me going to town and spending evenings out by myself but I was doing it for these plays and he loved hearing me sing in these plays. So he, you know, he allowed me a lot of freedom and latitude that I think, I think a lot of my siblings didn't get. So you grew up, you played outside, you worked in the scrapyard, you, you know, had to do really dangerous things. Your dad didn't believe in gloves and hard hats. And there, there was a scene you write about where he brought something where you had to basically cut up iron and push this iron through this machine with your brothers. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes, my dad, he just didn't have that bone in his head that that would tell normal people that this is dangerous, don't do it. So working in his scrapyard, it was incredibly dangerous. And I don't think, again, it's not that he would have ever intentionally put us in danger. I just don't think he was able to understand there's something going on with his brain and the way that his brain worked. Eventually in my life, I would come to speculate, of course, I'm not a medical professional, but I would speculate he had something like bipolar. I don't really know, but I know that he loved us. I know he valued our safety, but we were hurt quite a lot because the conditions were just not safe. So things like hard hats and safety harnesses when you're working in the air, he just didn't think they were necessary. I think he thought that God would never let anything happen to us that was bad. And then if someone was hurt, then after the fact, it became a thing, uh, the kind of narrative around it would be, well you know, you didn't die. And so clearly the the, the Lord was involved in that. And I don't know, it all just became part of this license to not take proper safety measures. And I think probably one of the one of the more extreme examples of that was this thing called the shear. We had a couple hundred thousand pounds of angle iron that we needed to cut up had to be under, I think, four feet in order to sell it as 
a scrap and we just had to cut it and my brother said we should use cutting torches but the fuel is quite expensive and so my dad i don't know where he found this thing but it was essentially a two thousand pound pair of scissors and it operated on a wheel and it was just like a chomping jaw and you shove the metal in and it smashed down on it but of course it bucked like crazy and there was a pretty serious risk that you would be thrown into this kind of beheading machine and uh, I just don't think I'm sure he could see that it was dangerous but I don't think his mind really processed how dangerous it was and what about your mom like did she have any was she ever like hey be careful or did you ever see her stand up to your dad and say hey maybe the kids shouldn't do this today or was she just in her own world what was she doing well my mother was never in the scrapyard so she would maybe see the after effect of the injuries but I don't think she had a grasp on how they were happening and I think things like that can be normalized really quickly it took me quite a long time to realize that not everyone who owns a junkyard has these things happening to them all the time again you grow up and you're a child and whatever whatever the world is that's the only world you know So that's what the world looks like, as far as you can tell. And I never, I never questioned it or thought it was in any way strange that we were hurt so much. I knew I didn't want to, I would find myself in situations in the scrapyard where I was afraid and I was asked to do things. So I would try to avoid that. But I never thought that that was that was odd in any way. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Tara Westover, author of the memoir, Educated. So one of the things that struck me throughout the book was there were times, I think once when you were dancing and other times, depending on what you were wearing, both one of your older brothers and your dad would either call you a whore or say that you were wearing something whorish. And, I mean, modesty, you you mentioned earlier, was important for women. It was part of, I think, the gender roles in, in the world that you lived in, in your dad's mind. But I also thought it was curious that as a young girl, you were beside your father. You were working in the scrapyard when your mom wasn't. And so I'm just curious, was there an age in your growing up where your dad would have seen you differently, where it wouldn't be okay for you to go to the scrapyard or where you would change in his eyes. Um, Because in some ways I thought he was very um, fair to all of his children. They were all boy, girl, you're going to the scrapyard. But then in another way, there were much different expectations. I think when we were all children, there would be a need to to get a lot done in a short amount of time. And then if, if there were little jobs that we could do, if there were jobs that, whether, no matter what gender we were, you know, if, if he needed scrap sorted, we would all do it because work needed to be done. And and I, yeah, I don't think he would have distinguished when we were children. I think as we, as I became a teenager, my sister had insisted on working for my dad when she was a teenager and kind of accused him of being a bit preferential towards his sons because he gave them these jobs and paid them and then and then there was nothing like that for her but I don't think she really liked it I I don't think she took to it very well and so I think my dad I think it kind of confirmed his his bias in a way that the women weren't really meant for this kind of work when I came along I think there were so many injuries that had been happening in the junkyard or just accidents and equipment being wrecked and and delays and he was behind on a schedule and my brother Sean had fallen 
and had a, a pretty serious head injury and had had injuries like that. And I think for my dad, he discovered that one thing I could do pretty well is I could I could drive the equipment. I could drive the JCB, I could drive the forklift, I could operate the crane. And I wasn't as good at it as my brothers. They've been doing it for a very long time and I hadn't been, but I was much slower and more careful than they were. I think because I hadn't spent as much time, I hadn't I hadn't received my safety training from my father in that way because I hadn't been working in the in the scrapyard as much. And so again, I don't think it entered into his head as this will be safer because I don't think he thought that way, but I think it entered into his mind as this will be faster, you know, when she's in the forklift, that accidents don't happen, the machines don't get wrecked, nothing gets kind of, we don't drive over sheets of tin or all, all these kinds of things. So I think, I think it was a, a thing of expediency. He was behind on contracts. He felt like I could help. So I'm, I'm sure that what, if I had gotten married and had children, that would have brought, brought an abrupt end to that. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Tara Westover, author of the memoir, Educated. As you were growing up, uh, another major feature of your memoir was your family life in, in sort of this bigger unit and what you were experiencing with your dad, but also with your brother, Sean, who was one of your older brothers, who was very abusive to you. He would pull your hair and put your head in the toilet and twist your arm. But he was also the closest person to you. Can you talk a little bit about who he is? And do you think he ever was abused by your parents? Like what, where, where do you think he comes in and in his personality? Where does that fit into your family? Depends on what you mean by, by abuse. I think the kind of abuse that he did, which was much more psychological, I don't think so. I never feel like I experienced anything like that from my dad. But I think that there was a kind of abuse in the way that my dad ran the junkyard that definitely had a psychological element. I just don't think it was at all meant that way. I think the fact that he couldn't, I think the fact that my dad couldn't understand actions and consequences, you know, if I if I do this thing, my child might be injured and then see after the fact my child is injured, I need to I need to do something about it. I think that that could be a kind of a kind of abuse because it would end up, you know, he would end up kind of making us do things when we were really frightened of doing them. And so I, I think it can be an, an unintended kind of psychological trauma. And I imagine that probably did happen to my brother. I don't know for sure if it did, but I, I'm, you know, it, it could have because I think it happened to a lot of us. In terms of the my my brother and the relationship that we had, you know, he could be the most sensitive, loving, kind person and really self-sacrificing. I mean, one of the stories I tell in the book is we were breaking horses together and I was on a horse that had been, we'd been working with it for quite a while. It was not at the beginning of its training, it was the middle of its training and he was on a horse that was literally the first day it had ever had a rider on it. It had never been ridden before. And of course, when horses haven't been ridden very much, they're very skittish. And what happened was my horse um, took a, he got kicked essentially, a full back kick by, by another horse and he went completely berserk. And I lost control of the animal and the reins flew over his head and my foot got caught in the stirrup and you know we were on the hillsides, there were ravines everywhere. It was just a matter of time before I came out of that saddle and then because my foot was caught, I would be dragged. And if you're dragged by a horse, you know, you're, you're not going to survive that. Your head is going to hit a rock and that's kind of the end of it. And my brother, I mean, it's an incredible risk for him to whip 
a brand new horse, never been ridden before into a frenzy like that because the risk of him losing control as well is, is pretty high. But he did and he rode, he caught my horse, he got hold of the reins, he was able to calm them both down. So he, he was capable of great sacrifice and putting himself at risk for other people. But then he also could be really manipulative and he could be cruel. And sometimes I think, I don't know if it's that he just wanted control over his world and couldn't get it. And so he would try to get control over people. Maybe that's what it was. Because what he would do is he would have these games where he would say, he would pick some some little task for you to do, maybe to bring him a glass of water. And then you would bring it and then he would say, oh, I, you didn't get me any ice. And so you'd go put ice in it. And then when you bring it back, he'd say, what is this shit? I, I don't want any ice. And you could just do this for any amount of time, take it out, put it in, take it out, put it in. Because he was just testing control. That's all he was doing. And then when when you got tired of the game and just refused to keep playing, that's when he would become angry and violent. And sometimes he would pretend it was a game, and he, but he would really be hurting you, but he would be kind of laughing and acting like nothing was wrong, even when he was really, really hurting you. And I guess I don't know exactly what to make of it. It was like he really could be these two different people. And the problem for me... I think was what made it really hard to recognize that relationship for what it was is that he the things that were good about him really were good they weren't tricks he really could be kind and I think there were a lot of years of my life where I used these good attributes the kindness the sensitivity the self-sacrifice I used those those parts of his personality to dismiss or overlook the manipulation, the control, even the violence. And it took me a long time to kind of come to terms with the fact that both of his personality, both of those parts of his personality could be true. Was his violence another impetus for you to get out and go to college and get an education? Or was that sort of uh, a side, you know, bonus? I think it was part of it because I was, I was unhappy and things, things were happening to me and I was getting hurt by my brother and it was certainly an impetus for my brother Tyler who had gotten himself you know he'd educated himself he'd gotten himself into into a university and I think he came back and witnessed a, a scene between me and my brother I don't know if he recognized the full extent of what was going on but he was enough aware to see that this was not a situation that I should be in and so he is the one who said to me look you just need to get these books, teach yourself some algebra, teach yourself some trigonometry, figure out how to, to pass the grammar section of the ACT, and then just get out of here. You don't have to do that well. It's just one test. I mean, I was pretty frightened. I'd never taken a test before. The ACT was the first test I ever took. But he basically just said, it's one test. You can do this. And, and, and then just get out of here. You went to college, you you read feminism, you looked at Mormonism through many lenses, you um, looked at, at selfhood, and I'm just wondering, because you had, you know, maybe at this point half your life with your parents and then half your life out in the world getting your PhD, what does selfhood mean to you? I think for me it is bound up with the idea of education. I think we talk about education as if it's about getting a better job, uh, moving up the social ladder, as if it's about making money. I think it's more about making a person. That's the way I experienced it. So I think selfhood to me has to do with being 
involved and active in creating the materials that you that you feed to your mind that you latch onto. I think that has something to do with it. But I also think that there is a part of you that is always tied to where you're from. And I think it probably should be. Those are really formative years. And I think one of the reasons I wrote the book is to explore that tension. Are we allowed to change? And how much are we allowed to change? And is the first shape that you take in your life the only true shape? Is that always going to be who you really are? Or can you really be someone else too? And I don't know if I can answer that question completely. I, I did the best I could when I, in, in writing the book, but you know, it took me a couple hundred pages. I, I just have to say this because it was one of my favorite aspects of the book is like how, how much you create your own reality and for you, you know, you had to leave this survivalist, isolated world and you found what you were looking for. And a lot of things at home, your dad's reasoning was like, this is because of God. Like maybe I got burned and I learned something because of God. And I think one of my favorite aspects of this whole story is your parents actually got pretty wealthy from your mom's herbs and you started off so poor and then your dad was just like slinging around 50s and 100s you know later in life and I find that so interesting because your reality is I got to get an education and see the world the other way and but in the same time your dad's reality kind of came true I mean they're they're wealthy yeah it's interesting I don't think they ever would have set out to get wealth um but my mother has she's an incredibly talented woman and I think anything that she puts her mind to for very long is is going to work out in a way yeah I, I think it's there is something very extreme about about them in, in a way that is that I yeah I I find really I don't know, I think it makes me a bit nostalgic that of course my parents would put all of their effort into something and of course it would be, you know, a, a really wonderful success for them. That's the kind of people they are. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Tara Westover, author of the memoir, Educated. Why did you decide to write a memoir? Because there, there were... I'm assuming maybe some some fear around that because of your situation with your family now. What spurred you to write your story? Well, I think when I was going through this process of losing my family, of becoming estranged from my family, I became really aware of the stories that I was being exposed to, uh, whether it was through film or books or sometimes even advertising. I just became really sensitive to the kind of message that that was in a lot of these stories. And I felt, I just felt like there weren't very many stories that kind of helped me understand what was happening to me. And I think, I think stories are really important. I think they tell us who we are, how we're supposed to feel, when we're supposed to feel proud, when we're supposed to feel ashamed. And I, I just didn't feel like those stories, the ones I was hearing, I didn't feel like there were very many that worked for me. It seemed like we had stories about family loyalty, but I didn't feel like we had stories about what to do when loyalty to your family was in conflict with loyalty to yourself. And I felt like we had stories about reconciliation or forgiveness, but I, I felt like most of the stories I heard kind of conflated those two things or took reconciliation to be the manifestation of forgiveness, that what forgiveness looks like is reconciliation. And I didn't know if that's what it would look like for me. So I, I just wanted to tell a story that had a, a more complicated view of those kinds of things, of family loyalty, of reconciliation, of forgiveness, of all of those kinds of things. And then the other aspect of it was that I had had this quite unusual experience with education and I wanted to write about that. And I, I think I realized pretty 
pretty soon into the process of trying to write the book. But really the two stories were, were, were pretty much the same story, and I couldn't really write either one of them without writing the other. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? So I picked a passage, just the opening couple paragraphs, David Sedaris, Now We Are Five, which was published in The New Yorker, I think in 2013. So here it is. In late May of this year, a few weeks shy of her 50th birthday, my youngest sister Tiffany committed suicide. She was living in a room in a beat-up house on the hard side of Somerville, Massachusetts, and had been dead, the coroner guessed, for at least five days before the door was battered down. I was given the news over a white courtesy phone while at the Dallas airport. Then, because my plane to Baton Rouge was boarding and I wasn't sure what else to do, I got on it. The following morning, I boarded another plane, this one to Atlanta, and the day after that, I flew to Nashville, thinking all the while about my ever-shrinking family. A person expects his parents to die, but a sibling? I felt I'd lost the identity I'd enjoyed since 1968 when my younger brother was born. Six kids, people would say? How do your poor folks manage? Tell me why you chose that. I think it's such an elegant way of handling a family story. I think a lesser writer would have said, right, I'm going to write the drama of this story is the suicide, and they would have made it this build up to this really dramatic thing that happens. But he's so intelligent about the way he just gives us that information in a really matter-of-fact way. And it, it really, for me anyway, it really earns my trust that this is not going to be a story that is exploiting the gruesome details of his sister's death. This is going to be about him coming to terms with that death. And it, and it really is. You know, the rest of the story is about the family. They go on this vacation and they're all just processing what it means to have been six people and now to only be five people. And I just, I really admire that. I think the temptation would be so strong to think, well, the emotional engine of this is is this is this dramatic death and and I just really respect that he that he said well I that's not the story I, I it's probably not really my story to tell I'm going to tell my story and I'm just going to give this in a very matter of fact way and and I'm not going to give into this 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 drama do you think that there's a chance you can reconcile with your parents i mean that they'll accept you back into their lives i don't know i think i'll always be watching for signs that my family culture has shifted away from secrecy and enabling and, and kind of extreme views. So I watch for those signs, but I don't wait for them. I've kind of accepted that whether or not my parents change is, is not really within my control. Can you read something that you wrote, maybe it was hard or tricky or changed a lot from the first draft? Yeah, so what I am going to read is from the third chapter of my book, and it's about the death of my grandmother. Grandma over in town died three years ago, at age 86. I didn't know her well. All those years I was passing in and out of her kitchen, and she never told me what it had been like for her, watching her daughter shut herself away, walled in by phantoms and paranoias. When I picture her now, I conjure a single image, as if my memory is a slide projector and the tray is stuck. She's sitting on a cushioned bench, her hair pushes out of her head in tight curls, and her lips are pulled into a polite smile, which is welded in place. Her eyes are pleasant but unoccupied, as if she's observing a stage drama. That smile haunts me. It was constant, the only eternal thing. Inscrutable, detached, dispassionate. Now that I'm older and I've taken the trouble to get to know her, mostly through my aunts and uncles, I know she was none of those things. I attended the memorial. It was open casket and I found myself searching her face. The embalmers hadn't gotten her lips right. The gracious smile she'd worn like an iron mask had been stripped away. It was the first time I'd seen her without it, and that's when it finally occurred to me. The grandma was the only person who might have understood what was happening to me. 
how the paranoia and fundamentalism were carving up my life, how they were taking from me the people I cared about and leaving only degrees and certificates in their place. What was happening now had happened before. This was the second severing of mother and daughter. The tape was playing in a loop. And tell me why you chose this. That passage I like because of the, there's the theme of death in that passage and of loss, but it comes in in a lot of different ways because you have all the generations. So there was a process of estrangement that was taking place between me and my mother. My mother was losing her mother to death, but also there had been some tense feelings there as well because of my father's kind of extremism. And then, of course, I had lost my grandmother in a way to that extremism because my view of her had been, while she was alive, I'd always perceived her through the lens my my father gave of her, which was that because she supported things like public school and doctors and hospitals, I kind of thought of her as less righteous than we were. Yeah, I chose that because I it was it was it was one of the things that I was, was I guess proud of doing of, of weaving those themes together in that way and having it be about death and loss, but from all these different perspectives. Where do you write? Um, just in my house. I like to have a cup of tea. I like to have my dog. I like to have a window. I like to have quiet. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? As long as I'm out of my house, I feel like that counts. So out with friends, to a movie, walk the dog, to read in a cafe, really anywhere that isn't home. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have a writing group in London I really like, and they're pretty brutal, which is what makes a, a good writing group, I think. And how have you dealt with rejection? I always expected rejection, uh, and then that helped. <laughs> I think if it had been a surprise, it would have been harder to take. And what is your favorite word? I don't know if I have one. Uh, I ha- when I was thinking about this, I thought I like the word seller, but I think I think I like words so much based on their context, because I quite like rhetorical devices like alliteration or assonance and consonance. So I, I think for me, words are very much tied to the other words that they're with. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Tara Westover, author of the memoir, Educated. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.